0: Hey, good morning. Uh, My name's Tim, also one of the pastors here, and uh, really uh, it is really great to be here and to warmly welcome you. um, It is freezing, so I'm hoping that by warmly welcoming you, it'll warm me up as well. Um, Yeah, really great to have you, and uh, really exciting. Today, we're starting a three week series within the book of Ephesians on the church. What is it? How does it function? What what should be foundational and fundamental in our life together uh, as the church, and most critically, I think we would all agree that if we're going to think about the church, we want it to be something. As we come together, that we hear from God. On we want we want the scriptures to give birth to us. What is the church? It's not about personal preference. Uh, It's not about what this leader or that leader says on a YouTube channel somewhere, it's about what God says about the church. Uh, Reach Australia is a national organisation that's bringing together like-minded churches from around Australia to help, help churches think about how they can grow to be healthy, multiplying and evangelistic churches. Uh, they've come along us uh, for about uh, a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. They've come alongside us as a church, helping us think about how we can become that. And there's a key uh, image that I'm going to get uh, Simeon to put on the screen for us, because I don't have... Oh, the clicker's right here. I thought I'd lost it. Uh, not the Bible reading. We're going to flick all the way past the Bible reading. Not because the Bible is not important, but just to get to the slide on the other side. Here's a key diagram that some of you would have seen before. Some of this will be the first time seeing it. Here's a key framework or concept uh, that sits fairly fundamentally to what church is. And it's, something, it's a diagram that we've, you know, that Reach Australia has put together uh, for thinking about what is a church. Uh, so you'll see there, one way to think of it is there are five purposes that we want to see coming into fruition in us as a church. And if we do that, then we're a healthy church. And it's described as an ecosystem. Uh, It's an ecosystem because they're they're not completely independent of each other. They impact and uh, influence and bleed into each other in the life of a church. So there's five there. Uh, There's deep in the Word. We want to be a church that's uh, founded and fueled by what we see in God's Word, maturing us, challenging us making us to be like Jesus. We want to be a church that loves God, for our affections to be uh, set aflame for God, that we worship and glorify God, not just on Sundays as a, as a large group, but in all of life. We want to be a church that's on mission, looking to make Jesus known to the world around us. We want to be a church that serves one another, that gives up our own interests for the interests of one another just like Jesus has. We want to be a church that's in community, knowing each other, loving each other, speaking the word of truth meaningfully into each other's lives. That's the picture that we're given, and I wanted to raise that for us this morning, because this is something that we want to become. This is something that we want to see become part of our life together as followers of Jesus. But we also want to be biblically discerning, don't we? We're not just about seeking out the best models for the fastest, the most accelerated growth, or models that make life easy for us. Uh, and we're not looking for models purely based on secular uh, business or entrepreneur uh, in, the, in those kind of worlds. We want to be discerning and only allow those models that, that come out of Scripture at a rise out of God's teaching to us, we only, want allow, we only want to allow those frameworks and models to really shape us as God's people. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 4. This chapter uh, is one of the places in the Bible where we see that this model is not something that's pressed onto the Scriptures trying to make it, make it fit. But chapter 4 actually helps us to see that this model comes out of Scripture. Particularly thinking about three of them. Two of them don't come as strongly in this chapter, but particularly three. And I just wanted to make that known to us. Uh, So this morning, the passage we're looking at, chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, is really looking at us in community. And then verses 7 through to verse 12 is looking at how we serve one another. And then from verse 13 to 16 is really looking about how we're deep in the word together. Okay, so that's what I wanted to give you up front uh, to frame what we're looking at here in chapter 4. We're thinking about our life together as followers of Jesus. And with some of that in mind, we're going to turn to chapter 4 now. We're going to read the first six verses together. So Ephesians chapter 4 verses one 6, and that's where we'll spend our time this morning. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the one who has saved us by grace. Through faith you've saved us not of our own doing but you've saved us as a gift not as a result of the works that we've done we cannot boast for we are your workmanship we are created in Christ Jesus for good works which you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them And so, Father, we ask that you would help us as you promised you will. Father, that you would give us everything we need so that we might walk in the good works that you have prepared for us. Please speak to us from your word this morning and uh, be with us as we work that out into our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, SBS has a TV series that they've been running for about 10 years now. I think it's about 10 seasons now. It's called Alone. Alone involves 10 contestants who are dropped into the middle of nowhere. And aside from medical check-ins, they have zero social contact. They have to survive. They have to go as long as they can and, and compete against each other to be the last one Standing, And so they're given all this uh, material and uh, that's actually one of the main things they have to carry around. And so they're recording themselves for this period of time where they are all alone in the wild. You see them building shelters, making fire, finding food and water. Uh, and contestants find themselves at absolute wit's end. There was one contestant that, uh, that I watched as, uh, as I was watching the show uh, and he absolutely froze with fear, absolutely petrified. It was the middle of the night, and there was a wolf that was like, the, you hear howling out in the distance. Uh, and this, this man was in a tent, and this like thin material between him and the rest of the wilderness outside of him. And this wolf, he heard it like he heard howling out in the far distance, and he was freaking out. And then it got closer and closer and closer, and then it was just one meter outside of this man's tent. This little bit of material between him and the wolf that would have eaten him for a midnight snack. And he woke up the next morning and he said, no, I am done. He sounded the alarm and the helicopters came and took him in, took him away. And this guy was literally face to face with death. But in the end, It's actually the social isolation that really makes them crack. The utter isolation leads them to mental and psychological breakdowns. You watch these people pour their hearts out in front of this camera, uh, kind of like shamelessly, like they've been really vulnerable in the camera, just desperate to see their loved ones. But, you know, the last person standing wins a quarter of a million dollars. So, of course, they're there and they endure and they they stick it out for as long as they can. And it's a show like that that shows us something about what it means to be a human. Deep in our DNA is this fundamental need and uh, desire for community and connection. We thrive when our relationships are functioning Well, and the Bible gives us actually the most straightforward answer for why that is the case. God created humanity not in isolation, but with companionship. He created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, who would then make families, who would make families, who would make families, uh, who would make towns and cities and communities. We were made for community. Yet in community and in our connection with others, it's exactly there that we have our most painful and destructive experiences. Relationships bring life to the soul, but they can also bring death, heartache, disappointment and loss. And the Bible also gives a very straightforward answer to why that is the case. Because although God created the world good and wonderful and and beautiful for us to enjoy, wickedness stained the human heart. The opening chapters of the Bible don't just tell us about God creating the world. It teaches us about a creation and a fall. Sin entered the world, infecting everything like a disease. And sin creates division and destruction. So here we go. Who on earth came up with the idea of church? Think about it. Let's put 300 people... 300 sinners under the same roof and not just a one-off, but every single week for the rest of their life and think, what is the worst that could happen? Well, our passage this morning actually shows us that church is God's idea. And he provides us exactly uh, what we need to make it not just possible a beautiful, glorious, an enjoyable experience. And so, let's start in verse 1. The first verse marks the beginning of the second half of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians paint this glorious picture of the gospel, uh, that by our union with Christ, uh, we are made recipients of every spiritual blessing. Chapter 2, verse 1, God resurrects us from death to life. And verse 7, raises us up to be seated with Christ, who reigns far above every rule and authority and power. And chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, God has made us one new household. Each member, a fellow citizen, One people, as one holy temple that God himself dwells in by his Spirit. It's chapter after chapter after chapter. The string of the bow is being pulled back further and further and further until chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The arrow is launched out. As we pull back the glorious picture of the gospel, it pushes us forward to walk in a new way of life. And what is it that is the very first thing that comes off Paul's pen as he writes? He says this, Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of Of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, according to what God is saying here, is maintaining the unity of the Spirit. God has made His people, His church, to be the temple where He dwells by that Spirit. There is a unity that exists between us, and we are called to maintain that unity in the way that we conduct our lives to live in unity with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now notice this. God's word here just does not imagine the possibility of being a Christian in isolation. What is it? That's a life lived worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel. It's to maintain the unity. You can't maintain a unity in isolation you can't bear with one another in love if there's no one else to bear with but you might say wait 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 are you saying i must go to church to be a christian don't you know going to church doesn't make you a christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car well, yes, that's that's exactly right. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, can cause you to be raised to spirit, from spiritual death to life. Nothing else, only Jesus. But to say that you can be a Christian and not be part of a church, well, that's that's a bit like a steering wheel pointing at itself and saying it's a car. Or it's a bit like your big toe looking at the rest of your body and saying, See you later, I'm a fully grown person myself. Now, when when God raises us from death to life, he unites us to his son. And in doing so, he eternally, eternally binds us together. Ephesians 2.19, we become one household of God. Chapter 2, verse 15, we are one new person. Living a life worthy of our calling means life together. It means fellowship. It means being committed to a local church, to knowing other Christians and, and allowing time for others to get to know you means living out our lives together. And just by the way, this is why we have a team of people who serve morning tea and coffee every morning. We want time together just to be the people of God, to engage in even small talk, to hear about each other's week, maybe to hopefully start developing more meaningful relationships with one another. Relationships where we can start to speak the word of truth meaningfully to each other. It's also why we run what's called Unite. It's a course that we run that goes for two sessions, and it's to help people join our church. Not just to hang around on the fringes, but to really meaningfully become part of our community. And in light of this, take this a bit further, I reckon there's actually a few myths that, we need to be, that need to be busted in church life. I think I've got a list of four. I can't remember how many. There's four. Four myths that I think this busts about our life together as church. Here we go. Myth number one, I will offend someone by asking them what their name is again. That's a myth. Uh, People want to be known. If you're chatting with someone for the fifth week in a row and you still haven't remembered their name, ask again. It shows that you value knowing them by name. You may also want to write it down somewhere to help you remember. But if you haven't, just ask. Don't allow that small thing to stop you from engaging in a relationship with someone. For the record, I reckon though the words I've heard myself say more than anything at our gatherings is, can you remind me of your name? And guess what? Not one person has been offended that I know of. Myth number two, I will offend people by reducing myself after being at the same church for several years. This church is older than 50 years uh, old, uh, and so it's worth noting that there, there may be people that you have shared a church with for more than 20 years and feel like you don't really know that person. I grew up at this church. I've been here since I was about two. And so there's actually quite a few people that I needed to reintroduce myself to. People who I've actually been in the same building with and uh, shared church with together for, for many years and just haven't had the chance to say hello. So that's myth number two. Reintroduce yourself. Again, don't allow that to stop you from having a meaningful relationship with someone. Myth number three. Uh, I need to know everyone at church to really be part of the community. Not true. At most, I reckon at absolute best, someone could hold maybe 80 to 100 people in their memory and, and in their circle of, of relationships, the broader circle, not the closer one. Uh, we're a church of about 250 adults, not to mention the hundreds, not really, but hundreds, what feels like hundreds of kids that are running around. It's perfectly normal Not to know everyone at church. That's okay. Myth number four. No one talking to someone at church is okay. To put it another way, I've heard people say it like this. A person on their own at church is an emergency. Now, that doesn't mean that you run at them or make them uncomfortable, or ask, you know, kind of nervously, why are you alone? You know, uh, just casually walk over a simple hello, how are you? Welcome to church. A person on their own at church is an emergency. And just to clarify while we're on it, it's not only the Connect team's job to welcome new people, that's, that's us. We are the people of God, and we as the people of God want to welcome everyone. We want to embrace people as they come to join us. Why? Because that's how Christ has welcomed us. So, with those myths busted, let's keep pushing on. We are called as the people of God to keep... The bond of peace. To be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit. You can see that to be eager means that it's actually probably going to require a little bit of effort on our behalf to do. And so having been called to keep the unity of the Spirit, Paul tells us a little bit about how we ought to do that. We're called to be gentle. Humble, patient, bearing with one another in love. See, to do this, to keep the unity of the Spirit, will require something of us. To put it on the other side, if, if we come to a Christian gathering, a gathering of the Lord's people, with a sense of entitlement... A kind of uh, what's in this for me kind of attitude. Well, if, if that's the deepest attitude that you hold towards church, you'll actually find that anger and bitterness will start to grow in your hearts. The kinds of things that divide and destroy. If you come to church, in your mind, picking out all the things that are wrong with that person or, or that ministry or the way that that thing was said, again, there, there's another attitude that will divide and destroy. Now, as the Lord's people, as we gather, as the one body of Christ, we must put on gentleness, humility, patience, love. and yet how elusive that can be i find i find entitlement a much easier outfit to put on than love i find my own interests to be far often so much more appealing than my than the interests of others and i think we all know this in our deepest hearts though don't we I think if we had to have a real moment of honesty, we would all know that although although we have this kind of this inclination to see what's wrong in others, that we actually, we actually are part of the problem ourselves. There's a story in, in Luke's gospel uh, where the Lord Jesus meets this guy, uh, his name was Zacchaeus. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, we're told that Zacchaeus is a short, a short man. Interesting detail for uh, the biblical authors to include. But he was an incredibly wealthy, uh, wealthy individual. But he was only wealthy because he was corrupt. He was a corrupt tax collector, and so everyone knew that he was this rich but corrupt guy. You know, he's taking advantage of me and and that's the house he's living in now. And everyone knew it. He was the guy that everyone hated. You know, maybe he had that, you know, short man syndrome thing going on, you know, overly obnoxious, trying to compensate for his lack in height, that kind of thing going on. And we've seen that kind of guy before, right? Not just the short person, but, you know... The low-hanging fruit, if you wanted to crack a joke at someone. Easy to get a laugh out of people. Well, because no one really likes Zacchaeus anyway. And, you know, the the guy kind of brings it on himself anyway, right? So anyway, here's Zacchaeus in the crowd, and Jesus moves toward him and says... Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. He was actually in a tree, uh, odd fella. I must stay at your house today. The most annoying person, the most anxious, proud, egocentric person, uh, corrupt, drawing money out of others' uh, pockets into his own, that's the person Jesus moves towards. Can you see how utterly compelling Jesus is? Can you see his gentleness? His humility? Here's Jesus who could have dined with royalty, and he draws near to the outcast. Can you see how he bears with people in love? And that is what Jesus is calling you to. That's what Jesus is calling me to. He wants us to be gentle and humble, to bear with one another in love. But if that's all you hear, you'll be utterly crushed. Who could be like Jesus? Jesus. Uh, who could live up to that kind of moral perfection? That would crush me. I can't be like Jesus. But that's not the whole story, is it? See, the gospel tells us that we're actually the Zacchaeus in that story. We try and find ourselves in these stories, and we often you know, want to place ourselves in the place of the hero. But the Bible again and again puts us in the place of, of the Zacchaeus. if everyone really knew the depths of who you are and who I am, the reality of sin and wickedness in our life, people would probably treat us like they treated Zacchaeus. But also in the gospel, on the cross, we see that this is moving towards you. On the cross, Jesus is moving towards me. Me. And until you see that, you will never be able to be like Jesus. You just won't have a hope at all. See, Jesus on the cross was killed so that you could be made alive. Jesus on the cross was rejected so that you could be brought near. And he wasn't just rejected by those around him who put him on the cross, but Jesus was rejected by God on the cross. When he carried our sin and he carried our shame, Jesus was bearing for us what we ultimately deserve for the sin and wickedness in our hearts. This is what God has done for you. This is what God has done for me. And he's, he's not just done it for a whole bunch of individuals, but he's done it for us corporately, as one body, one community. And so last week's passage, uh, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, we comprehend the love of Christ together with all the saints. This is the love of God for us, shown to us in Jesus. And so we look at how Christ has loved us. Christ has loved us. Christ has loved us. We who fall short of what he's called us to, we who struggle to live in unity with one another, That's us look at how Jesus has been patient with us look at how he's been so gentle with us see his humility he's the one who bears with us in love he has never removed his spirit his presence with us even for a second For those of us who have trusted in the Lord, his presence has never left us. And so we say that Christ is in fact the one who shows us what it means to live and to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. To bring this to a close, uh, verse 4 to 6 Say says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you were to ask the question, what are we? Who are we? most fundamentally, at at our most deepest roots, at the most uh, fundamental layer, who are we? We're not a particular gender. We're not a particular race. We're not a particular age demographic. We're not a particular social class. Uh, We're not even a people with a particular shared history. Who are we? We're nothing less than those who have been eternally bound to the almighty God who is the Trinity. The one God who exists in three persons, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father, who has made us to be one body. We share one faith and baptism, one hope. And we live for one person to bring glory to our Father in heaven. At our most fundamental level, who are we? We are one. We are one. And we're called to maintain that unity that's been created amongst us. close in prayer i'd love to pray again uh, what i started this prayer in from uh praying from chapter 2 verse 8 to 10 we're saved by grace through faith it's not our own doing it's the gift of god it's not a result of work so that no one may boast and here's where i think we can find help and confidence to walk forward in what christ has called us to we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The calling of living in unity with one another, given the reality of sin that exists in every heart, is a high calling. And yet that's what he's called us to, and but he will not leave us without everything we need to do it. So why don't you join me in praying? Our Father, by your grace, you have saved us through faith. This is not our own doing, it is your gift to us. It's not a result of works, so that no one, not one of us, may boast. There's no games that we play with one another around who's uh, better or worse. This is not a result of works. No one may boast we are your workmanship we are created by you in christ jesus for good works which you have prepared beforehand that we should walk them walk in them and so father we ask that you would give us everything we need you would help us to see jesus and his love for us and we ask that that would enable our love for one another to grow and magnify And Father, might our experience of church really start to show and magnify the love that you have for us in the way we treat one another. And Father, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.